Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. Just a quick reminder, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Our guest today is Ted Knudsen, the owner of StatsBomb, a soccer analytics company. We discuss the growing role of analytics in soccer today, Ted's story of going from the University of Oklahoma to living and working in England, how he developed a relationship with Bob Bradley, and his thoughts on the impact of this week's Supreme Court ruling on sports gambling when it comes to soccer. The difference in Moneyball in soccer and Moneyball in American sports is that in soccer, like you have direct profits, you know, like you buy and sell players for money, so it's easy to keep track. As opposed to you know baseball and stuff where like you know you kind of have to figure out your profitability out of the picks you made out of the draft and the draft you know then guys get traded and you don't have like the direct same assets so it's a much cleaner i guess way of of tracking your your progress in soccer than it would be in in the u.s all that and more coming up our guest today is ted knutson He's an American who lives and works in England, and he's the owner of StatsBomb, a soccer analytics company. Ted had a big announcement of a new StatsBomb initiative on May 9th, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. Ted, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I want to begin this with a fun story uh, that happened fairly recently, uh, just a few weeks ago. I was over in England doing a story on Mohamed Salah, and I'm on the train at the station in Liverpool in the morning. And I'm just sitting there having some coffee and a guy walks up and asks me, are you a U.S. soccer writer? Which doesn't happen too often on uh, trains in Liverpool. And it was you. And here's this guy that I followed on Twitter for a long time. And uh, it was this really wonderful thing that happens uh, just coincidentally from time to time. And we had a nice discussion about your story, which to me, it was totally fascinating. And, and part of the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about what you're doing in sports analytics, but also just kind of how you got into it and, and your story. And why don't we start there? What is your story? How did you get into soccer? How did you get involved in soccer data analytics? At that train meeting was so weird because like, I could have stopped at any point and found a seat and I just kept <laughs> walking forward and walking forward. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're a very distinctive looking individual. So it was either like you or Lex Luthor. And I wasn't entirely sure. So I figured I'd ask. Maybe check a different train if you, if it was Lex Luthor. So my story. Um, I didn't... The area that I grew up in the U.S., I'm, I'm 41 now. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have very much soccer or almost any accessible soccer when my parents sort of moved kind of out of the, the Chicago suburbs and down into farmland, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took me a long time. Like I was always intrigued by the game, but it took me a long time to really get into it. And the 1998 World Cup was going on. I was graduating from, from University of Oklahoma at the time. It was summertime. The games were on in the morning, so you just wake up in, in the afternoon. You wake up, you watch soccer, and then you go to work in the evening. Uh, and that, that, was, that was great for me like as, a, as an undergrad. So that was when I really became a fan. And I became an Arsenal fan off the back of them having uh, that Bergkamp goal happened in that, mm-hmm. that World Cup. And then the French, uh, French World Cup win had Henri, had Vieira, uh, Manuel Petit. So... <clears throat> 
then back in those days, it was really hard to to find Premier League stuff. So mm-hmm. like you get like the two week two hour wrap up every every Sunday evening on some random Fox channel. Hosted by Lionel Bienvenue, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and exactly. And I was just like fascinated and in love from that point and started playing pickup matches when I went to graduate school um, at Emory as well. And and yeah, so that, that was kind of how my love with soccer started. Okay. And then soccer data happened on the, on the back of, I've got a, a 2005 notebook. Um, I read Moneyball and I was, thought it was awesome and exciting. Mm-hmm. I was like, man, if I could just get granular stats for soccer, I'm sure that I understand the game well enough to, to start using it. Now, this is 2005, mm-hmm. and I didn't actually get access to that until 2013. Wow. <laughs> so 2013, um, or at the end of 2012, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and I had the surgery to, to remove it, and then I was on chemo, and I couldn't work because it was just... You know, it was a, you were recovering and you were on various levels of drugs. And it's not a, not a good time to be working regardless. So um, I needed something to distract me. And I started to, to look into and around like different model work that we could possibly do because I'd worked in professional gambling at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'd done a lot of stuff on, on sports. But I was like, you know, we haven't done any player level type modeling on soccer because we never had access to it. So it was a, a couple sites out there that were carrying the, the statistics from Opta at that point. And I was like, you know, I'll, I'll start to get tucked into this. And so I did. And I was looking at team stats, but also at player stats. And, and that was my, my distraction from that period of time. And it really took off from there. Okay. And so what were you doing in the gambling industry? So um, at one point, I was a professional gambler in the United States. And then the UGA law hit. And basically, we had to, we had to figure out how to, how to work around that one way or another, which might have included somebody... Uh, leaving the country from part of our small group that we were mostly making money on American sports in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so a place called Pinnacle Sports closed their their doors to all Americans on January 9th, 2007. And it was just this enormous event, this world-shaking event for gamblers anyway. Mm-hmm. A bit like like the poker stuff, like closing all on the same day and you can't you can no longer play poker in the U.S. Yeah. So at that point, I went down to... Uh, well, we'd been working with a little bit off and on. We had good contact with the owners of Pinnacle, and they hired myself and one of my partners to to help rebuild their their product line. And so that's what I did. Um, I spent eight years at Pinnacle. Uh, I built the live department. I, I completely rebuilt the soccer department, and uh, and then at some point I started writing about the soccer stats and got introduced to a guy named Matthew Benham, who, mm-hmm. funnily enough, owns two football clubs, but also a professional gambler. Uh, and that was kind of he made a bunch of profits to be able to afford that. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, same for like Tony Bloom. Tony Bloom, uh, you know, one of the world's biggest syndicate gamblers, uh, which we say syndicate gamblers, but really we should just basically call them hedge fund owners for <laughs> sports betting because like it's the same thing. Yeah. People think that it's some sort of shady thing, but in reality, these guys just owned hedge funds and they bet on sports, and that was kind of a normal thing outside of the United States. But for someone from the United States, you're like, whoa, this is crazy. So yeah, that was it. Uh, met Matthew Benham. Went to work for Brentford and Michelin for two years and then came back out and decided to start my own company that was looking at sports data and analytics and helping football clubs find and sign better players or play in better styles or whatever. Okay. So I got in touch with Matthew Benham for the first time and I think it was 2011 when uh, betting companies around the world were noticing that the 2011 Gold Cup was bent, as you might say. <laughs> Or there is a high high probability that there were games being uh, compromised uh, in that tournament. And the more I learned about him, it was pretty fascinating what he was trying to do with his history 
of success in the gambling world and his interest in buying soccer teams. You mentioned Brentford and Micheland. And their theory, which is basically trying to do, is it, is it over, overly simplistic to say money ball for soccer? No, I think that's pretty straightforward. Um, the implications are slightly different and how you can do it is different. But also the the difference in Moneyball in soccer and Moneyball in American sports is that in soccer, like you have direct profits, you know, like you buy and sell players for money. So it's easy to keep track as opposed to, you know, baseball and stuff where like, you know, you kind of have to figure out your profitability out of the picks you made out of the draft and the draft, you know, then guys get traded and you don't have like the direct same assets. So it's a much cleaner I guess, way of, of tracking your, your progress in soccer than it would be in, in the U.S. Okay. And can you give me a sense of uh, sort of what you learned uh, in, in your time with, with Micheland in, in Brentford and uh, how you're using that to apply to what you're doing now? So it's interesting. The first thing, first project that I ever got from Matthew was to work on set pieces. And he was kind of the one that kind of had the initial idea saying that we think that this phase of the game is not well studied and most people don't pay any attention to it. But we think that you could probably have some success. Can you can you really tuck in and do an analysis on this? So I spent six weeks to two months breaking down a lot of video, looking at analysis and statistics of teams that were good at doing this, uh, reading a translated version of Gianni Vio's book mm -hmm. about set pieces. Um, he's and the then, guru, he, right? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's lovely too. Like, wonderful <laughs> guy, super bright. Um, and so then I put together kind of a best practice manual. We put a lot of video inside of this, and uh, we delivered it to both of our clubs. And it was one of the main things that powered Michelin to their first title ever in the Danish Superliga in 1415. Uh, and then Brentford had some challenging issues on the coach side and difficulties in getting it implemented. And, and so it wasn't as successful there. But we realized at that point that it was a bit like American sports and that you could take the data and the holes in like what you think, put somebody smart on it, build out best practice, and then have a really big impact on how you play the game, as well as the, the more normal, comfortable stuff we talk about with transfers and a little bit of style of play and things like that. And so, you know, I think when you look at the NBA, you can definitely say that analytics has changed how you play. Like you wouldn't play Houston style 10 years ago, mm -hmm. but now it's almost clearly like the best way to play. And, and also like Golden State in the same way, nearly identical styles, slightly different based on personnel. But, you know, the, the three ball and then drive to the basket, like that's just it. No long twos. Mm -hmm. And I think soccer is going to come around to that. But it also we're way, way behind where the American sports are in terms of using data to, to be able to find this stuff so far. Okay. And what is the, how is the reception in Europe in particular of using data with sports, in particular soccer, how has that changed in the last several years? Because obviously it, it certainly seemed to me like there was a ton of resistance to it for a long time. I totally agree with that. I, so I went inside in 2014 and StatsBomb kind of existed as a, as a blogging website to start to do analysis. And a lot of smart people wrote on there and many people got jobs uh, on the back of that, like one or two in, in Premier League clubs, uh, plenty in media. Mm -hmm. But when I came back out in 2016, I kind of had expected that the world would start to change based on some of the success we had had and just because it's a natural progression. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that it hadn't that much, <laughs> but 
Uh, well, it was a big surprise to me. I was like, oh, this could be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> for somebody who's looking for a new job uh, in, in football again, I, I may, may struggle for a bit. So might as well just start your own company. Uh, but um, what, I, what I found over the last two years is that I, I kind of compare Europe to a, a whole f- field of dry grass. Okay. And it's just waiting for the right spark for everything to light on fire. And I think that started to happen. I think that we've seen growth on the data side and the data usage side. We're seeing a transition of coaches from the older generation that want nothing to do with it, largely because they've spent 20, 25 years using their expertise in various ways. They don't feel like they need to change that much. And I get that. But on the flip side, like we think that we have better ways to go about things, or at least more informative ways, more objective ways to go about stuff. And we needed the coaching ranks to start to change over for people that also view things like that. And I think that this year, especially, we are seeing a lot of inroads in that. Um, you're seeing some of the big clubs who have used data be very successful with it as well. Yeah, I guess some of the things I had heard over time were that even the, the clubs that were hiring really good data people very often the manager or the staff wouldn't want to use it very much. And are there any particular places that uh, are changing? Well, I think Liverpool use it the best. Um, you, you could you kind of look at the, the parallels of Liverpool and Arsenal. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it gives you a little bit of indicative stuff. You could have the best information in the world. And if you don't apply it, then it doesn't matter. You mm-hmm. might as well just not have it. Um, for Arsenal, they bought StatDNA in like, what, 2010? Maybe mm-hmm. even before then, right? A long time ago. And they've had this sort of like good stats data company that probably had better data than anybody else in the world for a really long time. Sitting there, they had plenty of very bright people that we know about. Lots of resources put into it. But at the top level, like Wenger's the one that makes the decisions. And you don't really know what their process looks like behind the scenes. But it seems like they didn't use it that well. Mm-hmm. And then Liverpool also have like a similar timeline in that... I think Michael Edwards was there around 2010, 2011, Ian Graham, 2011, 2012. Uh, those are kind of the major stats components of that. There was some arguments and some some political whatever going on potentially uh, between them during the Brendan Rodgers years. But then you look at the their success, especially in the transfer market uh, since that time, uh, when it, it's pretty clear that they're making mostly statistics-based and well, with, with scouting backup uh, choices. Mm-hmm. And they've knocked that out of the park. Like almost all of their, their transfer signings has been really, really good. They paid, you know, pretty close to market normal amounts at the time. But if you never miss one of those, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so not all of our listeners here are data experts or followers. So I wanted to ask you just sort of a basic question. We hear this term expected goals a fair amount these days. What is that? It's a way of saying this shot from this location over history has been scored this percent of the time. And it's got like four really simple components. And if you go out on a, on a soccer pitch or a football pitch and, and you break these down, you'll realize very quickly that it, it starts to make sense for you. So the first one is your distance from goal is probably the biggest driver of being able to score. If you take a shot from six yards, you take a shot from the penalty, you take a shot from you know the edge of the box and then from five yards out, you'll have very different probabilities of actually putting the ball the ball and the goal from there, especially if you're only trying to aim for like a one yard target on either side. So distance from goal is a big thing. Angle, the wider you are, the easier it is for the keeper to cover the, the angle on you. So it's harder to score from wide spots. Uh, often players find this a surprise. Um, <laughs> headers, headers are much worse than feet. 
from the same distance. They're much harder to score. And then the last one is that crosses are hard. So basically, if you control the ball in front of you and you're able to take a shot, that's pretty straightforward. If you have to try and redirect it in off of a cross, either with your head or your feet, it's much more difficult than, than being able to control it and then shoot. Okay. And how are people using expected goals? All over the place now. Um, some of it is, so it's kind of funny. You hear Guardiola uh, sometimes in his stuff talk about process, right? He's like, we could have an amazing match and we could play really well, but I don't control the result. Uh, but if our process is good, then we know that we're, we're in the right space. And we know that football has some luck involved and that's part of the fun of it, right? But at some point you need to break it down to say, what did our process look like? How did we actually play that match? Did we kind of deserve to win or not? Now it's not you know pure, did we deserve to win? But expected goals gives you a bit more information on that. And it tells you, hey, if we would normally score two goals in this in this match and the, the opponent, you know, maybe had half a goal worth expected goals, we had a, probably a really good match. We might have made one mistake at the back or somebody had a, a screamer from long range and it went in the goal and that happens, that's football. So that's one area. Another area is they look at it for um, player personnel and, and looking for transfers. Like, can we find guys that are better than you might think or even just like find guys that look like they're going to continue to perform very well versus they've gotten lucky over the course of some games but happen to have a number of goals and some penalties logged into that and you might make a mistake on that. So that's another area that, that we see a lot of usage of this stat. It's not... It's not super complicated anymore. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of a thing at the beginning where they're like, oh, you're using numbers and, and you're telling us that this guy got lucky. <laughs> and like maybe it's skill. Like, well, yeah, I mean, some of it might be skill, but we think over time that guys that have a lot of expected goals are going to score a lot of goals. And we've seen it actually happen over the last two years with some of the biggest names in football. There was a start with Zlatan. Uh, at Manchester United where he didn't score that many goals and everybody was complaining about it like oh this is ridiculous and I looked at his numbers I was like this guy's going to score a bucket load if he just keeps doing the same thing and the same thing happened with Ronaldo this past year and with Ronaldo everybody's like oh he's washed up I'm like man he just he's had some poor luck and this is what we would call statistical variation but you can't say that Ronaldo isn't an elite goal scorer he's always been an elite goal scorer if he just keeps doing the same thing the same process then that should end up with goals and it did eventually it did Okay. So what are you attempting to do with analytics in your big recent announcement that has not been done before? So we, we were coming to the end of what we could do with what we call basic event data or the current event data on the market. Mm -hmm. And um, for people that are not inside of football clubs, you can't really get a hold of tracking data. It's limited to clubs or maybe if you're in the Champions League, you can get a hold of it um, there as well. But Premier League clubs basically only have tracking data on the Premier League. Um, so we, we couldn't get a hold of that and be able to operate ourselves. We decided to, to take event data one step further and figure out a spec that, that came as close as possible to, well, it, it was just the next merge to be able to come closer to tracking data. So mm -hmm. for expected goals, you have information about the shot, but you don't know where the defenders are on that shot, and you don't know where the goalkeeper is on that shot. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to start tracking that, and that's part of the new StatsBomb data stuff. Okay. Uh, and, and that's fascinating to me that before that wasn't taken into account because that seems kind of important. It does. And, and we would get pushback from coaches. You go into a room with a coach and they would tell you, well, I hear what you're saying, but this isn't good enough. And, and as, as a person who's working with data, that you can't change the data, like, well, coach, this is the best we got right now. I, w I would love to change that, but we can't fix it. Okay. And I mean, this comes up with a very specific moment that you and I had an exchange on Twitter about where Breck Shea for Vancouver last week 
misses this ridiculous sitter against Houston. Um, and I noticed that the, the data that was posted said that there was actually a 35% chance, according to expected goals, that he would miss that sitter. And I was just like, what? You know, why would there have been a 35% chance? It seems like a much smaller chance that he would miss that. And you said we should talk about this. So with that, that particular chance, we had another one that we posted in our, in our launch video uh, that was Harry Kane. Mm-hmm. And the Breck Shea chance in the expected goals model is basically competing with the history of all shots from that location. And it doesn't know that the keeper is basically out of the goal. It doesn't know that the goal is open for him. And what happens is from that location, about 65% of the time, that's a goal. But if you know, that's a very different chance if there are two uh, defenders on top of him and a goalkeeper versus being an open goal. And the what we call naive expected goals that doesn't understand this extra information thinks that this is how the world works. Any chance from there has this sort of probability. There might be what we call error bars around it. Now, I don't want to get too statsy, but you know, there, there is a, a, an added element of error inside of that chance. Mm-hmm. What we've done with the, the goalkeeper information and the, the defender information is, is now say, okay, well, this isn't an average chance. This is very clearly a different chance than average. And I think ours probably gives that maybe a, a 90% chance because of when you know, the keeper's struggling to get back. When that's taken, he might be able to make the save. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't factor in the it's Breck Shea. Uh, you could if you had an awful <laughs> lot of information, but uh, I don't, I don't want to get myself in trouble there. <laughs> so it's clear from seeing some of your presentations, also from talking to you on the train, that you have a relationship with Bob Bradley, um, the the coach now at LAFC. And I was wondering, what's the story there? W- so it's kind of a funny thing. Uh, my company, unlike a lot of companies, doesn't really talk about um, you know who we have deals with. Some of them want to stay super private. They want to keep their edges. I get that. But Bob brought me up, I think, on... <laughs> <laughs> on a podcast, I think. <laughs> on a podcast, in fact. And, uh, and so I guess we, we can discuss it a little bit. Um, so I had interviewed Bob, or well, been part of the interview process for Bob with uh, an open job for Mitchell End. Mm-hmm. Um, back in just after they'd won the, the title, the, their coach decided that he wanted a, a new challenge or whatever. So he was one of the candidates that we looked at and had some interesting conversations with Bob. He's a, he's a, a very experienced coach. He's a, he's a very uh, avid learner, like mm-hmm. regardless of whether he agrees or not, he, he will go out and, and learn about a thing. Um, and so like Bob and I have kind of had some chats over the years and he's pushed back on some concepts and actually he was one of the reasons, like one of the very direct reasons why we started to, to try to improve the data because it was the only way that we could get more towards how Bob used the game or how elite coaches view the game in particular. Okay. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, I push back and Bob are sort of hand in hand. Uh, if you've listened to my interviews with Bob on our podcast, I love them. Um, but well, yeah, exactly. Like when you get a smart person who disagrees with you, that's not a bad thing. Like right. you're, you, you can probably learn from that. And for somebody like me, learning from that's like somebody that teaches you something is incredibly valuable. Uh, so like, you know, disagreeing with Bob is fine. I don't mind disagreement. Um, and it turns out that in this particular case, when when Bob was like, hey, Teddy, you, you can't tell me if I've got two guys that are going after a, a header uh, and, and bodying the, the guy that's getting a header on the six yard line. Like that's a good chance anymore. We've done our job. That's that's not an easy chance. And I was like, yeah, you're right, coach. And so now we can start to tell him, and it'll change how the model views that chance, and hopefully it'll be better. So this now that you're coming up with your own data, and I can only imagine how much effort that requires. Um, what are some other things that 
you're adding to it that you might have heard from other coaches or decided you wanted to to measure? So pressing, I think, is a big one in the modern game. And and what we call we define a pressure is like, you know, a guy is closing down someone from a distance and sort of forces them to take an action. Mm-hmm. Uh, pressure, how we measure it varies up the pitch so if there's a forward that's being pressed that comes from a a smaller distance than a goalkeeper because the goalkeeper if he makes an error like that's a goal versus the forward if he makes an error and and miscontrols it or something like that's just a a giveaway in the opposition final third so not that big a deal so pressure is a big one and we wanted to start doing that because we wanted more off the ball information Mm -hmm. uh for teams like a liverpool or uh, city or whomever, like they're looking for guys that are good pressers and finding a little bit of extra information in the data is very useful. New York City FC, actually, I think are fairly aggressive pressing over the last two years as well. Mm-hmm. And and so they, they're the type of club that, that would want to use that. Not everybody does. But what we found was that like Burnley press a surprising amount of the time. It's hmm. just they press in a very different place than you would see uh, a Manchester City or a Liverpool. They, those teams will press high more often. Burnley is pressing more in a deep block, but they are very aggressive in closing down the ball so that opponents don't really have much time even in when they get to their half. So that was kind of intriguing. And you can start to find players that do that and you can find locations for that. Uh, you can also build game models around it. So say, say you're Bob Bradley <clears throat> and you know that when the ball gets in the zone in this area, we need to press that within like half a second or within a second. And normally this guy needs to press it, but somebody needs to press the ball. And we can then go back through the game film and then code up all the data and say, this happened and we failed in these spots. Why did we fail? So it becomes coaching points. And a lot of the stuff in the new data is based around feedback from coaches. The other cool thing that's not obvious is that when you take and you record pressures and then we read who they are pressuring at the time, you get actions under pressure. Mm-hmm. And if you ever played soccer, you know that you react very differently if you're being pressed than if you're not being pressed. <clears throat> and it gives you a context around all these stats that you've never had before. And that's super cool. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems like that would be something very useful to learn. Uh, you had also mentioned at some point, I think on your Twitter feed, goalkeeping, that you're measuring some things that maybe aren't traditional or haven't been done before. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, so with the goalkeeper locations, we can now start to look at their angle to the shot. Was it a good angle? Was it a bad angle? <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. <clears throat> and should it uh, – are they covering – it's basically like more feedback for goalkeeping coaches or, or players themselves. Uh, are you in the right angle for any particular shot? If you weren't, why weren't you in that angle? We can start to build reaction times off of it because we've got some information on how hard the shot was. So we know if the shot bobbled through or if it was very hard. And then maybe you can start to build a range factor. You have the starting spot. You know where the save was made. You can say, okay, this guy actually seems to have a quite a large range of saves that he makes uh, versus somebody else that, that we can compare in the same sort of way that doesn't have as much range. So that's all kind of packed into this type of stuff. And the, the most amazing thing is it's brand new data and we don't always know how people are going to use it. So as we release it out into the world and, and, and to the team world, they're going to come back to us and say, oh, well, we're using your data in this way and we found out these things. And you'll be like, wow, that's really cool. I never thought of it that way. And that's like the best thing in the world. That's interesting. It's almost like when um, you, know, you create an app design situation for like a smartphone and let people come up with things that you weren't expecting. Uh, maybe there's some similarity or, there. Or the mod community. Like think of, think of games and, and people go into and they spend a lot of time with games they love and they build yeah. all these mods in ways that you would never <laughs> expect them to use it. And you're like, huh, that's incredible. 
And one thing you had mentioned to me on the train was that women's soccer is an area you're going into and not just that, but that you're going to try to get more women involved in the the analytics community. So one area that we have found frustrating is like we've posted different job openings, whether it be for data scientists or analysts or whatever. And we would like to, to hire more female employees. Um, it, it's difficult to even get applications. Mm. Uh, and, and especially, so, and it's not just us. Like I talk to people in the NBA, I talk to people in professional baseball, and they're just not finding as many women uh, it, that are qualified in places that they, they want to potentially, if they want to diversify. Mm-hmm. And most of them do. Like, it's not the old style. They're like, no, we know we need to diversify, but we still need to have qualified applicants. Mm-hmm. So we kind of looked at it and said, I mean, I grew up and I probably watched more women's national team games from the point that I became a fan than men's national team games, not least because they played deeper into tournaments, so there were more of them. Um, so I, I definitely grew up supporting the, the U.S. women's national team and, and even some of the, the various leagues that went along the way, like Cindy Parlow and Mia Hamm and, mm-hmm. and uh, Christine Lilly, Like I, These are all names that I'm very familiar with and watched them a ton. And I said, all right, I want to support women's soccer. And I also want to create more women's analysts. How can we do that? And so we are going to go out there and put the women's game on the same spec as the men's. Uh, women's Champions League, we're, gonna, we're trying to talk to, to some people about getting as much um, video footage of that as possible. Mm-hmm. The uh, NWSL, the FAWSL, so the, the English women's team. And we're going to actually start to, to release that for free. Wow. Because we want to we support it. And we feel like more people need to have access to that type of data. Hopefully, if we support it from the women's side and, and give access to women's data, we'll create plenty of new fans around it, people who are statistically inclined. Hopefully, we'll create some new uh, women's analysts and, and potentially we'll just help grow the game and, and the women's analyst community as well. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, like and it also gets into it's smart as well, but it also gets into um, the idea of releasing data for free as a business and just the general idea of proprietary information and what goes into that calculation from your your part as a as a business owner well it's tricky because obviously this costs us a good chunk of money um to collect and it costs us a lot to build the systems to be able to deliver it and the analysis on top of it but the fact of the matter is like for me this is worth supporting i've got two girls one of whom probably isn't going to be a soccer player but the other one's young and she may very well be and so i want to create like a slightly different world where where they can have you know uh, the same information as the men and my wife also is is very supportive of this and and feels strongly on it so we decided to that this is something that we will do um yeah it's it's challenging. Like we get, we're already getting requests for free data. Everybody wants free data. I'm like, man, this was expensive to create. I, I appreciate that you're interested, but <laughs> give me some time. And and that's just it. Like we will be releasing some of the data for free, uh, probably uh, maybe in the the autumn to to start. It does take a bit of time. We're a small company, but this definitely seemed like a cause that was worthwhile. So we wanted to to find a way that we could support it from our own little angle. And this is what we came up with. Okay. So I guess one question I would have is if you're somebody out there who's going to be maybe interested in analyzing the women's data that you come up with from the NWSL and Women's Champions League and the English League, should they contact you or somebody else? So just give us a few months and we'll put a whole bunch of information on our social. So like the social media will will be very loud about it. And then I know that we will also start to potentially run 
uh, run articles on statsbomb.com. Like Mike Goodman is, is also very interested in supporting this as well. So we're going to give it some of our own own slots that we would give to the men's game, but we're going to create new spots for the women's game too. Cool. Um, I guess in the big picture, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, where where do you want to go with soccer analytics in the next few years? You had mentioned earlier that soccer is still behind a lot of the the big U.S. pro sports. I think that this is. Uh, I hate to use this word because it feels almost cliche at this point, but it's a process, and it's it's a lot about <laughs> you got to trust the process, guys. Uh, now it's a lot about building the right audience and and an audience that's comfortable with a lot of this. And I think we kind of saw that in baseball for years too, where basically the the early reaction was, oh, get out of here with this. This is ridiculous. Even baseball that had tons of stats for ages, mm-hmm. like they didn't like the new stats and and the regime or the establishment of baseball was very reactionary against it. But I think that as as you keep talking about it more and more and you find fans and you find owners and you find you start to build coaches that are are open to this, it just becomes a natural part of the, the evaluation process. So I think that, that you know five years from now, expected goals or some concept thereof will just be totally normal. And in fact, we're seeing it in broadcast uh, at the moment. So like that, that's the start. And, you know, soccer will just move towards a, a spot where where numbers are an interesting element. People want to use it for their fantasy leagues and fans are comfortable with it. So why wouldn't the rest of the sport be? So also I wanted to ask you, I mean, you're a guy from the American Midwest. Um, you talk like I do, like a Midwesterner. Uh, you choose to live in England. Where, where do you live in England and why do you choose to live there? So in 2007, when the U.S. gambling laws changed, I left the country and I lived in Caribbean for four years. Okay. And uh, I met my current wife there and we uh, ended up having uh, – she was pregnant with our second child and we, we kind of decided we needed to move towards grandparents. And, and having a gambling job, like moving to – I think my folks were, were either in Oklahoma or South Texas at the time. Like that wasn't the best idea. <laughs> Her, her folks are from Bath, and so we settled here, and that's where Statsbum exists now, and we're, we're building a, a real company. But it's been great to be over here because like, you're just immersed in, in the football culture, culture of Europe. And uh, yeah, I got to see the, the London 2012 Olympics, which is also sort of a crazy cultural experience. Uh, it's been lovely, and, and I really enjoy it. But I've been out of the U.S. for 11 years now, and yeah, it's a, it, from, <laughs> if, if I look at myself as a, as a kid, like he'd be kind of really fascinated and freaked out by, by the whole, whole experience. <laughs> You've yet to acquire a Brad Friedel half accent, though, I've noticed. Yeah, I've, I've been working on that, but I, <laughs> my, kids, my kids laugh at me too hard to pick it up. So I think I'm, I'm going to stick with the, the more Midwestern one and leave the, the other accent to Madonna and Brad. <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to talk about before we sign off is uh, the news this week from the Supreme Court about sports gambling uh looks like it's going to get the the go-ahead essentially state by state uh here in the u.s and as a guy who has spent a lot of time in the gambling community both domestic and abroad i think you're really well positioned to discuss what this means in your opinion uh not just for sports betting but you know this is a soccer podcast what it could mean for soccer in the u.s uh, the growth of the sport potentially, what it might mean for MLS or the growth of international soccer here. It's interesting in Europe, uh, you see tons of sponsorship on uh, kits from gambling companies, and and that's like a first natural thing. Uh, you'll see. I remember 
Sloan two years ago, I got off the plane and went to the train station and it was just carpeted with the, the fantasy uh, games, like the yeah. TFS game advertising. You'll start to see advertising uptick significantly and that will bring new money into into soccer itself. I think from a, a customer point of, point of view, like that becomes really curious how it gets implemented because uh, I, I can tell you from years of gambling uh, offshore, a, our pricing model looks different than Vegas. And so if you're paying minus, 10, minus 110 in Vegas, like often the offshore had minus 105. And that's much more customer friendly. It means that like you don't have to be nearly as good in order to, to beat the book. And, and so like it'll be curious to see who takes what perspective on that type of stuff. But from a, a league by league perspective, it becomes kind of cool to just be able to, to put a bet on a, an MLS match and have it not be that big a deal. And I think even bigger, like Liga Emekis, there are a lot of uh, Mexican Americans who, who would love to potentially bet on that sport. They've never been able to before, but now they probably will. That's interesting to me. I mean, I've got a friend who theorizes that this Supreme Court decision might help soccer as much or more than other sports in the U.S. just because you can bet on soccer round the clock. There's so much volume in games around the world. Is that something that you buy potentially? Certainly true. And also like the big events, like, you know, people just want to bet on the World Cup. And it doesn't matter if you're American or anything else. You just want the opportunity to bet on that. Same for Euros to some extent, if you're, if you're that type of fan that follows it. So like the, those are the events that see the biggest uptake. And that's always worldwide. Uh, but Americans have been excluded from this. But in most of the world, it's just a natural thing to be able to place a bet on on a game. It's not a big deal. It's not particularly overwhelming. You can still go to Vegas and do it. So it's not like it's it's weird behavior. It's just very restricted behavior in the past. The Supreme Court hopefully uh, ruling will hopefully change that. And yeah, it's 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 been. I think the the gambling money inside of of soccer and football, like you have to be careful about how you allow it to happen. But it's definitely something that Americans have wanted to do. I remember, like, you watch the NFL broadcast for years and years, and they talk about our friends in the desert, or they would <laughs> casually mention that they just covered the spread or the total or something like that. And so, like, you can see it kind of happening. I always thought it was amazing that we would get the spreads, like the Vegas spreads on every NFL game on a Sunday morning, but then you couldn't do anything with them. So, like, they're there. You can see them. <laughs> But like they're like t taunting you, and and now that that hopefully will change. <laughs> I've always wondered too with MLS in particular. On the one hand, there's a lot of what seems to be uh, you know unpredictable results in MLS, or more so than we often see in other uh, leagues, just due to the sort of designed parody of the league. Uh, and so, at first blush, and I'm as you can tell, not a, a great betting expert. Um, at first blush, you're thinking. It must be really hard to bet on MLS, but then I've also had people tell me that because there's not as much expertise in the people setting the lines for MLS betting, that actually if you have knowledge about MLS more than the person setting the lines, you might be able to do pretty well. Yeah, especially at a low price model. So I can tell you from having watched MLS plenty over the years, <laughs> like the, the big challenge in MLS is because of the playoff structure, you'll often find that elite players get rested more than you expect. Mm -hmm. And if you, as a, as a, as a customer slash gambler, have an idea of how that impacts the team more than the person setting the lines, you've got a pretty good edge there. Like, say, say you know that, that um, Giovinco is going to be out and you know, Josie may get rested. And how good are Toronto without those two players? In some cases, like, that can be a big deal. In some cases, it can be no deal at all. 
And, and that's where people who know the league really well can still have a, a pretty big profit. I can also tell you, like, we, we used to do futures. And we do futures for the Premier League. Mm-hmm. And I, we got to be okay at them. But people just always knew more. Like somebody out there was always like beating us on on these futures because they'd be like, oh yeah, we're actually this guy doesn't matter, and we changed our coach, and he's much worse. And across the twenty league uh, t- uh, or twenty team league, you can start to pick like say two bets that are really good there that you'd be able to beat the book on. And it just happened every year. It got very frustrating. You spend a lot of time on this. You're like, oh, we've got to be better, and the customers are just smarter than you. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking nonsense here. Like I actually put up a post one time that said, you keep taking our money. Please bet on our futures more so we get smarter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would also assume, right, that the Supreme Court decision is good news for uh, the media industry, but also good news for what you do. Oh, certainly. I think that it creates some extra uh, you know, users of data and maybe some American groups that do like Matthew Benham and Tony Bloom did where they get involved in, in sports betting and they want to know more about our type of data or stuff like that. But certainly for the media, like you constantly have new angles. And I think that that's been sometimes a challenge and we very much live in a new media world. So like how do we find better ways to, to talk to customers that they're interested in? And fantasy and gambling and having more like sort of continuous information and being part of the game drives potential fan interaction better. So I think that yeah, it, it is probably a positive overall in those ways. Well, this has been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Ted Knudsen, good luck on the uh, what you're doing. Congrats on the recent announcement. Thank you very much and thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Ted Knudsen as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon and Fubo TV. Recent guests include Indy Cowie, Brad Friedel, Juan Pablo Angel, and Miguel Almiron. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.